Tonight, the battle over boosters just hours before American a critical FDA advisory I know you just sat down, so this feels cruel for some of you, but would you stand with me as we read the passage that we're... It's the last time we'll play this game today. We're going to read from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. That's what we're walking through today. If you don't have a Bible to follow along in, you can grab one in the seat pack right in front of you. Verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. It's the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. It's, uh, it's amazing how little effort it takes for us to get off course. One, one small decision that we make can just kind of domino uh, throughout our day. We, we begin on the wrong foot, and it seems like we can never get to the right one. I love how uh, Tim Mackey, who's a theologian and also the creator of the Bible Project, he once said in a, in, in a conversation he was having, we're all one bad decision away from imploding. And how encouraging is that, right? <laughs> We're all one bad decision away from just utter disaster. But what we also know is that sometimes at those decision points, those things that we feel, we're also just one push away from that disaster. And as we read in this passage this morning, we're reminded that woe to the one who helps give that push. If you've ever received an email from a Nigerian prince claiming that he needs your help, right? Judged by the laughter in this room that uh, you're not alone. Uh, some of us have received that, and, and I'm still waiting uh, for, for what I want back. Uh, but what's funny to me is that this is one of the oldest known email scams out there. People know about this. We joke about it. Uh, we, we say you should never do that. And yet, still, to this day, yearly, it raises over $700,000 in funds. Now, people are still falling for this. And what's the cause of that? Why are people so susceptible to these moments? Well, I think it speaks to the greed that's in our heart. We would all love to make a quick buck. We'd all love just a little bit more. There's a woman by the name of Marjorie Jones. She's 82 years old. She's a mother and a grandmother. And although she was legally blind, she was very independent. By all accounts, she had it together. People admired her, looked up to her. That is until the day that she suddenly took her own life. 
See, months before she had received a phone call informing her that she had won a sweepstakes, that a substantial amount of money was coming her way, and all she had to do to receive that money was pay some taxes and a few fees. And over time, she began paying those taxes and fees, and then she would get more calls saying, we need just a little bit more, and please keep this quiet so that nobody knows until the check is cashed, and then all of this will be paid back to you. She went through her own life insurance policy, all of her retirement, until she get, got down to only having $69 left in her bank account. She reached out to a family member, but by then it was too late because the shame was so great in her life that she chose just to end things instead. All because somebody came alongside and manipulated and used what power and influence they had to oppress and bring down. But this story is not unique. See, we could go all the way out into the rural parts of the Himalayas where a young girl is just trying to get enough food to eat and her parents have no way of supplying her uh, anything other than the life that's right in front of her and they're, they're barely able to give her the food that she needs. So when somebody comes in promising an education, a home, a better life and a better opportunity, both the girl and the parents, they jump on this because they can't wait for something better, only to, to find out later that the desires of this person were far more sinister than they could have ever imagined. And now this young girl is trapped in a life of sex trafficking. A story that replays over and over and over again in these rural areas. A story that we like to keep at a distance because it makes us feel better, but it's actually encroaching upon our own borders as we're watching some of the Haitian refugees who are being turned away and having to go back to Haiti, finding that their life is filled with people who are making threats, extortion, demanding things of them, children being kidnapped, being placed into child labor, sex trafficking, all this stuff just begins to repeat over and over again. And what's common What's the, the common thread that kind of weaves throughout each one of these stories? It's someone taking advantage of another person. It's someone using their influence, their power, whatever they can to put someone down for their own gain. And what we know is that these stories aren't isolated events. The pursuit of money, the pursuit of power, the pursuit of more, it's a disease that infects all of us to some degree and while these stories break our hearts, they also fill us with a rage towards those who would act in such an atrocious way. These people who quite literally are, are sowing the seeds of death wherever they go. But there's an extreme we hear, right? When we hear those stories, those seem so outside our realm of possibility that we're like, that would never be me. I would never do that. So this doesn't apply. But haven't we all at some point found ourselves placing our own wants ahead of the well-being of the person in front of us? Haven't we felt a sense of scarcity in a moment where a toilet paper roll seemed worthy of pushing our cart just a little bit faster than the person who is next to us, right? It exposes some things in us pretty quick that we think, well, it's not that big a deal, but once we start to feed that, it takes us down a path that's hard to recover from. And so this morning where we find ourselves in the words of Habakkuk are in the woes, five woes to be exact. We're going to look at two of them. 
But over the next couple weeks, as we look at these woes, we're going to see a, a woe against the extortioner, a woe against the greedy and the arrogant, a woe against the violent, a woe against those who are just willfully living in sin, a woe against the drunken, violent leadership that takes advantage of others, and a woe against following idols. Each of these are marked and distinguished by the word woe. Woe is a word that's not often used in our day and age, not in this sense anyway. Sometimes we're like, whoa, like W-O-A-H kind of a woe. Or maybe we'll say sometimes like, woe is me, having a bad day. But woe is a word that is used 53 times in the Hebrew scriptures. It's used in the sense of lament or judgment. Eight times it's used to describe a funeral lament, somebody who's just outwardly grieving. Four times it's used as a cry to get someone's attention when you're in distress. And 41 times it's used as an announcement of doom. Whoa. It's a weighty word. And as one author states, it shows that the action under prophetic condemnation has the seeds of death in it. The seeds of death. You see, God is speaking to Habakkuk and he has just been telling Habakkuk there is a path. There's a path of the puffed up, the arrogant, the unrighteous. It's the path of the Babylonian kingdom that you're watching unfold right now. But there's also another path that comes in contrast to this. It's the path of the righteous, the just, those who place their faith in God. And what God is going to begin unfolding here, he's giving a running commentary on this passage that the righteous will live by faith and those who don't, Well, here's five woes against them. Here's five words of prophetic condemnation that's saying the seeds of death are in these actions. And so we pick up and we look at the first two woes this morning. Warnings against these seeds of death that creep into our hearts. And and in turn, sometimes we begin to sow them in our own lives. Warnings against using our power or our positions, our influence to oppress those around us. Because what we will see is that if we give in to these seeds of death, we may experience a momentary uh, time of worldly gain, but the question is at what cost? At what cost does this have to our soul? when we pursue this path that God says, woe to you. So as we begin, let me just pray for us as we step into these words. Father, as we, um, we hear your word, we read your word, we have access to it. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that when you told Habakkuk to write these words down so that those who hear it could run to the right source, they could run to you, Lord, that we, we have the ability to hear this. But Father, as we look at a passage where it's easy to disassociate ourselves from and say, well, this isn't about me. I would never do such things. God, would you help us to see where the seeds of death have been sown in our hearts, Buried beneath the surface, but there waiting to sprout if we water them even just a little bit. And so, God, in this time, would you just expose that? Would you remind us that you have given us the seeds of life? And will we pursue you wholly and completely? We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So just by way of reminder, um, 
We've been looking at these words of Habakkuk, and we're in chapter 2 now. Last week, we, we saw as Habakkuk was waiting for God to respond, God responds to him, and he gives him this image of two pathways, and he says, the righteous shall live by faith. But the, the, the puffed up, the arrogant way, it leads to, to death. And so Habakkuk has been looking at the world around him, seeing the swirl of chaos, seeing a, a nation that's on the rise, that's going to be moving through and conquering with all sorts of evil and just consuming those around them. And he's wondering, God, what are you doing? Why are you allowing this to happen? And God's response in this moment is to trust me, Habakkuk. Trust me in what I'm doing. I'm not absent, even though you may feel my silence right now. I am moving. You have to trust me. Place your faith in me. And so picking up in verse 6, we start to move into these woes. And verse 6 says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges? Now, instantly as we're reading that, we need to remember that this is attached to the verse that came prior to it in verse 5, because we say, who are these that are taking up this taunt? And against who? What, what's the combination that's happening here? And what God is speaking here is, you've seen this way of the puffed up, the unrighteous, the Babylonians and what they're doing. And I'm telling you, Habakkuk, their time will come. And the ones that they are oppressing, that's what verse 6 is talking about. These ones who've been held down, shall not all these take up their taunt against him, against Babylon, with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? He's saying these that have been oppressed, they are now going to become the oppressor. The, the tables are going to turn in this moment. Because how long can they get away with this? Well, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Woe to him who takes what was never his in the first place. And this is what we see in the Babylonians, that that's what they were doing. Wherever they could get to, whatever kingdom they could overtake, they were taking and taking and taking and taking. So woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. And for how long? Well, he says, for how long? And he, and he loads himself with pledges. Right, so these are phrases we don't use often. What does it mean to load yourself with pledges? Well, if we look at what a pledge is, a pledge was given to ensure the repayment of a loan. And we see in the Hebrew scriptures, this practice was something where like if somebody owed you money, you may take a cloak from them, something from them that signified, okay, uh, you're going to pay me this and I'm going to hold on to this as kind of just a, a sign and a symbol uh, that you're going to make good on your word. I'm going to hold this until you give it back and then we'll just kind of do a trade there. We, we see a, a sign and a symbol like this in Genesis 38 when, when Tamar is demanding her payment from Judah and, and he's like, I'll give you my, my signet ring and my cord and my staff and you hold on to these and I'll make sure that I get you your full payment. Because a pledge is just a sign of a, a good faith. But what we see is that this system of good faith could be abused. It could be used against the one who is placed in a vulnerable position. That's why God has made it clear to his people, there's a way in which I want you to go. There's a way in which I want you to live. And when he spoke his commandments to his people, he said, you're going to be a people of justice and righteousness. You're going to follow in my way. I'm going to give you my instruction, my Torah. I'm going to point you on how you should live. So in Exodus 22, 25, and 28, he says, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. 
If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. What do we see God saying in this moment? He's putting instructions in place to protect those with little to no power, to protect those who are vulnerable. If you took as someone's pledge their cloak, and it's their only cloak that they could sleep in to keep warm in at night, and you knew it was a cold night, and you're like, I'm not giving this back. You're going to be so cold tonight, which means you're going to pay me faster. God's like, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not what we're going to do in these moments. No, I'm going to protect those who are vulnerable, and I'm actually going to protect the powerful from their own greed in their hearts that want just a little bit more, and you're going to treat people with dignity. See, Deuteronomy 24, 10 through 13, he says this. He says, when you make your neighbor alone of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is poor, a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge, meaning you're not going to keep his coat and sleep in it yourself. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. See, we hear this, and you're like, you're kind of giving up your bargaining chip, though, aren't you? If you give back the pledge... I don't know how many of you saw it this last weekend, a Tom Brady threw his 600th touchdown, right? And, and as the guy, it got one applause. And we, everyone's like, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> Great. But what was funny was this moment where the guy caught the touchdown and the guy who caught it, Mike Evans, he gets the touchdown and he does what he often does. He goes and he hands it to somebody in the crowd who's wearing one of his jerseys. Now, little did he know, it was the 600th touchdown. This had some historical value. Actually, immediately had some monetary value. And so he hands it to this guy, and Brady's like, I wanted that ball, right? And so someone, one of their handlers, goes over in the middle of the game and starts having a conversation and starts negotiating. And what was funny was the commentary as people were talking was the guy's holding the ball, and you're like, you have all the leverage right now. Just run out of that stadium. You're going to get the world. And all of a sudden, he hands over the ball, and everyone's like, well, he's lost all leverage, right? Because that's how we think. Like you just gave up all your power. And what God is doing is saying, no, no, we're going to operate different. It's, about, it's not about you powering up. It's not about you trying to extract as much as you can. No, it's about you being honorable and just. And if you're going to help somebody, then help them. Don't use that help against them. And so the way of faith is not the abuse of power. It's not ill-got gain. The way of the arrogant, the way of the oppressor, well, that was ill-got gain. Loading up what's not your own and loading up pledges, taking all these debts into account that you can call them when you want to, using your power to prey on the powerless. See, when we read this, we should start to hear some alarm bells going off that this isn't new. This isn't something that's absent from our society today. Because we hear about abuses of power all the time, whether it be in business, whether it be with financial issues, whether it be with sexual harassment, whether it be abuse even within churches. We see the powerful prey on the powerless. And what God is saying in this moment is, woe to you who sow the seeds of death. Woe to the extortioner. Woe to the one who takes what is not theirs. Woe to the powerful who use their power to oppress. But these words continue. Verse 7. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. The thought here is that those who are plundering will now be plundered. 
This feels a little bit like when we're talking and we say, well, they had it coming, right? I mean, you saw their actions. They, they were due. Paul says this a little bit differently in Galatians 6-7. He says, do not be deceived. God's not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Or better yet, Jesus in Luke 6:37 says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, what Jesus was describing here is, yes, the debt of forgiveness and all these different things. But in that day and age, when you were trading somebody, having a good measure, an honest measure was important. And a lot of people wanted to cheat their measures so that they would give you something and get a little bit more in return. And what Jesus was saying was the opposite of that. He's like, oh, no, no, no. When you're measuring, just be generous. Press it down. Fit as much into that cup as you can. Let it be overflowing. Never be stingy. No, 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 no. That's not what you're about. Because with the measure that you use, it's the same measure that's going to be taken against you. See, the Babylonians, their measure was we just want more at any cost. So when people rise up against them, they just want to take them down at any cost. Saying, pay attention to the way in which you move. When someone comes after you and they rise in anger, our natural inclination is to rise to that level of anger. But let me tell you, it doesn't work very well, does it? It's like adding gasoline to a fire and it just spreads. And now everyone's just mad in this moment because you've allowed somebody else to elevate you. And God's saying, I know you're elevated, Habakkuk. I know you're feeling this, this rage, but you got to trust me. I've got what's going on here. I've got it under control. I'm watching. And I know you don't think I'm watching. I see how the Babylonians are rising. I see the evil that they are committing, but their day will come. But woe to the one who takes what is not theirs. Woe to the one who oppresses. Woe to the one who sows death and expects life to rise up. Verse 8, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Again, those who have plundered will now be plundered. The violence that they have caused, the blood that they have shed, the destruction that they have left in their wake, it's all going to come to an account. Heflin once said this, evil's inherent tendency is to self-destruct. This is what we see play out on the path of the puffed up, of the arrogant, of the greedy. Life just turns inward until it implodes. So woe to the one who oppresses another. Woe to the one who only thinks of their own needs at the expense of another. And so here we have the first of the five woes. Raining out woe to the oppressor, woe to the extortioner, woe to the one who takes what is not theirs. Now verse 9 through 11 uh, bring us to the second woe. And I want to read all of these together. Verse 9 says this, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. To set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. So as we unpack these, we're going to see that this again is speaking to this greed, this evil gain. But this gain that will haunt you. 
You won't be able to enjoy it because it's never satisfied. So it begins again, woe, woe to him. This solemn proclamation of someone who's sowing the seeds of death. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. Again, this is directed towards the Babylonians who are just constantly collecting kingdoms and people, bringing the best and the brightest from all their their conquered nations back to Babylon, building up this beautiful city and protecting themselves there, safe from all the carnage that they've created throughout the rest of the world, and they're trying to keep a distance from themselves. But there's something else that they would do. Once they conquered a nation, they wouldn't stop there. They would, ask, they would ask for a tribute from that nation, meaning that they had dues that were owed to them. It was kind of like, now we're, we're protecting you. It's like the mafia has moved into town, and if, if you want to be protected, you've got to keep us paid in order to do this. But the rates of their tributes were at such a level, at such a cost, that they could never really build back up their nation again. They could never be a perceived threat again because their oppressor was always keeping them down with their boot on their neck. See, this is what happens when the vulnerable are just continually kept that way intentionally by the ones who are in power. So woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. And again, we hear this and we're like, well, I'm, I'm not an oppressing nation, so I don't really think I have to worry about this one as much. But again, there's those seeds of death that are sown into our heart that leak and, and, and surface beneath our hearts. We like our positions of influence. We like our perceived power. We like the pecking order of our friends. Have you ever had that moment where you kind of have a group of friends and what's funny to me is this isn't just like middle school stuff, this is like all the life stuff. Where somebody enters the group who's new and they're trying to find their space and as they're trying to find their space in your group of friends, you kind of find that, oh, you're kind of filling up some of the space that was mine. Like, that's kind of my role in this group. And whereas before you were rooting for this person, now you're like finding yourself in competition and like, I don't know if you really belong with us. I don't know if you're one of us. I don't know if this is going to work out. Right? When you feel that creep up in you, that's that seeds of death that are sown in our hearts that's there and it's starting to expose itself and you have a choice in that moment. Am I going to chase that feeling or am I going to chase the path of faith and be like, Lord, there's something greater that you're calling me to in this moment and I want to pursue what you have for me. See, we can chase the seeds of death, but at what cost? At what cost? Proverbs 1, 18 and 19 says this, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. See, when we allow greed to enter into our heart, it it robs us of our joy of the moment because we never quite have enough, right? We can't just be content with what's in front of us because we're always waiting for that little bit extra. In the first movie of the Pirates of the Caribbean, I loved the story as it unfolded that Captain Barbosa and his men, as they had got this gold and they had captured it and it was what they were searching for, they realized soon after that this gold was cursed. That the thing that they were pursuing, that they always wanted just a little bit more of, had now robbed them of their ability to taste. 
to fill their bellies, to, to smell the, the world around them, to experience life as it was meant to. Instead, they were cursed to continual dissatisfaction. And it's such a good image of the way of the greedy, of the way of the proud. Because we're never satisfied when that's our pursuit, when that has hold of our hearts, when we're watering those seeds of death in our life, we will be consumed by them. So woe to him who gets evil gain. Woe to him who sows these seeds of death. Again, Babylon the Great was standing secure in its wealth. And what God was announcing was that soon they would be upended and would find themselves insecure in their own standing. Verse 10 says, You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. Here again, God is showing the effects of ill-got gain. When one thinks they're building their own stature, their own reputation, and yet they're using whatever method they can in order to gain that, even at the expense of others, what they find is they're just really building life to their great shame. I know this is kind of a silly example, but it's something that's always stuck with me in my life. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, we were having a fundraiser uh, for our, our school sports, and there's a raffle, and there's all sorts of different prizes. And one of my friends was running the, the prizes. And as we were looking through all the prizes, there was, there was one little harmonica in the corner that someone had donated. I was like, oh, I want the harmonica. Because once again, you guys, I'm that cool. Um, and so I'm like, I want, I want the harmonica. That's, that's, that's what I want. And so I, I'm doing the raffle tickets, and I tell my friend, I'm like, yeah, I'm really hoping to get that. And he's like, I got gotcha. you. Right? What did he mean? I didn't, I didn't know at the time. No, I knew exactly what he meant. He was going to rig the raffle so that I would get it. And what did I say to him? I just sat there kind of indifferent, like, well, I'll just see how this plays out. Right? And I got the harmonica. Right? He, he announces my name, and I kind of go up, and kind of this wash of shame over me, like, this wasn't, this is, I cheated. Right? Like I cheated and I still took the harmonica and I was like, no, but I'm going to use this. And the, you know what's funny? This is, this is probably revealing too much. But in my head at the time, I was, I was leading worship in our high school group. And I'm like, no, but I'm going to use this to the glory of God. <laughs> right? That kid. Right? No, this is going to be great. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Right? And every time I looked at that harmonica, I could feel this wash of like, oh. And what I know is I'm not alone. We all have mementos of some sort in our life or moments that we look back to and we go, oh, yeah, that wasn't my finest. Yeah, I cut a corner there. Oh, yeah, I just mowed over that person to get what I wanted. Yeah, that sticks with me. That haunts me a little bit. I, I could go into some much deeper stuff than a harmonica. Right? <laughs> but that's, that's the word here. You're forfeiting your life for things that weren't even yours to begin with. This is the way of death. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells this story of a man who, who owned a bunch of land. And he has all these crops, and it's a, it's a bumper year. Everything goes better than expected. And he's looking out, and he's like, man, look at the bounty of my life. And so he comes up with this plan. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to store it all up. I can kick back. I can eat, drink, and be merry. Life is, is I've finally arrived. I've, I've made it. And what Jesus says is in this very story, God speaks to this man and says, you fool. For tonight your very life is demanded of you. So now who's going to enjoy all this? Now there's a danger to this story. Because we can hear this and we can think, oh, so success is bad and we should avoid it at all costs. 
wealth is not something we should pursue. That's not what Jesus was saying in this moment. That's not what he was warning against. It's when our identity, when our hope, when all of our faith is placed in our wealth and the things that we have, that's when we're in trouble. That's when we're on shaky ground. It's when we allow those things to eke into our heart. But Jesus, again, here is is reminding, no, you've been given this great wealth. And what's your instinct to hoard it? That's not the heartbeat of our Father. What we've been given, we have been blessed with to give right back to those around us. And so Jesus concludes the parable as everyone's leaning in, like, what do we take from this? He says, so the one who lays up treasure for himself, so is the one who lays up his treasure for himself, that he's he's left with just, just death. But it's not so for the rich towards God. See, what he's saying is if we're rich towards God, if we're trusting in him, if we're trusting in who he is, that wealth can come, that's great, but we see that as something that's to be stewarded to God's glory, not to our own. Influence can come, that's great, as long as it's something that's being stewarded towards God's glory and not for our own. But the issue comes when we lose our way and we start to trust in that over him. So again, woe to the one who gains wealth and forfeits their soul and the prophet. In the process, woe to the one who continues to allow the seeds of death to take root in their life. It continues on, verse 11. He says, For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Here again, we see that even the home that is built by ill got gain is speaking against the builder. It's crying out. You sit here in these beautiful houses while others are are mangled in the carnage that you have created. This crying out of this stonework and these beams in these houses, it, it sounds similar to another crying out that we see early in the pages of Scripture when we're looking at the story of Cain and Abel and the count of them bringing their worship before God, their sacrifice before God. These two brothers come and Cain brings his sacrifice. Abel brings a sacrifice and Cain doesn't receive the same favor that Abel does. And in that moment, his jealousy rises up and he has that choice. Do I pursue life or do I pursue death? And he allows his jealousy to win the day. He strikes down and he kills his brother. And God comes and speaks with Cain, which again is a gracious act. He's just killed his brother and God shows up to speak to him. And what does he say to him? In in Genesis 4.10, he says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. See, ill-got gain, oppressing others. We may not think there's a cost, but oh, is there ever a cost? These things cry out to us. They haunt us in many different ways. And again, he's speaking to the Babylonians in their ways, but God is giving us a warning even to this day that this is not the path you want to go down. See, the Babylonians, they made great gains at the expense of others. And sure, they added more wealth to their pockets, more power, more prestige. But again, the question is, at what cost? So as we walk through these first two woes, the question I always have is, okay, so what do, we, what do we take from this? Because again, I know it can be really easy for us in a passage like this to kind of put it at arm's distance and be like, listen, I'm not really like 
in the middle of a Ponzi scheme where I'm trying to rip people off. I'm not, you know, I'm defrauding anyone of their money. I haven't killed anyone for their possessions. Uh, so I think I've been pretty good, right? Like, but woe to those who do. But what about the ways in which we, we use people for our own gain? Or what about the ways that we kind of manipulate people to get what we want from them? What about using your, your wealth or your resources as a way of maintaining power over people? Yeah, you're generous and you give people good gifts, but your expectation is that now they're loyal to you. What about allowing money to come between you and another? What about when the pursuit of wealth becomes all-consuming at any cost? I've spoke with, with people on the other side of that chase, where they've got all that they wanted, where they pursued the career, the title, uh, the, the right salary, all of those things to realize that by the time they got them, their kids had no idea who they were. Their spouse just merely tolerated them, and what they thought they were gaining, they had lost more than they could ever have imagined. See, this is why in the midst of all the chaos that Habakkuk was looking at around him, God speaks to him, and he says, yes, I hear you. I know it looks like evil is winning. I know it looks like those with ill-got gain, they're getting ahead, and their, their billions are only growing into more billions. But let me tell you, Habakkuk, it's come at a cost that they cannot pay. And this brings us to us. These woes, they make their way through the centuries, and we still find the headlines that speak of extortion. We see the arrogant and greedy always wanting just a little bit more. We even see it in the medical field where, where certain uh, medicines that are necessary for the health and healing of people are, are priced in such a way that those who need the most can't get them. We see kids that are forced into child labor to produce clothes that we want at a cost that allows the large corporations to get great gain. But what's our part in these things? See, I think it's important for us to recognize what has a hold of our hearts. What's steering us in this moment? What's tipping the scales in one direction or the other? Is the argument over inheritance worth the destruction of a relationship with a family member? Is our pursuit of wealth worth bending the rules? Even if no one's looking, no one will ever know. It's not going to harm anybody. Is seeing people as a means to an end worth the cost of real relationships? Does a good deal on clothes justify the poor working condition of the workers? Does the pursuit of more always lead to more life? See, these questions all bring us to this, this thought of what are you willing to sacrifice? What seeds of death are you willing to allow to take root? What are you willing to let have hold over your life? Because at some point we'll all be faced with these decisions that seem seemingly insignificant. But if you remember, we're all one decision away from implosion. So when you're faced with that moment where the path seems unclear, ask yourself, at what cost am I willing to go down this road? At what cost am I willing to go down this path? Am I willing to forego my integrity? Am I willing to sacrifice my family? 
Am I willing to sacrifice the well-being of another? At what cost? Because there's always a cost, and the, the way of death seems really easy and enticing, but it will cost you everything. And the question is, is that the story you want to tell with your one and only life? And this is where we come back to two paths. The way of the puffed up and the way of the arrogant, the way of the greedy, the way of death, or the way of faith, the way of trust, and a king who has come not to be served, but to serve. See, when we put it like that, it seems so simple. Like, well, why would I ever choose death when I have life in front of me? But we all know making that choice is hard. Because sometimes it means in faith and trusting in Jesus, you're not going to pursue the next rung on the corporate ladder for the health of your family and for your own spiritual health. Or it might mean meeting the needs of a person who's in front of you at cost to yourself and benefiting in no way, shape, or form. Or it means if you have influence and you are leading in some capacity, then you are serving more than you are ever leading or using your position to oppress and keep others down. See, again, there's an ache towards this way of living, but it feels impossible because the seeds of death have been sown into our hearts. But at what cost was God willing to break us free of this? See, he was willing to break us free at the cost of everything. For God in his great love sent his one and only son into this world that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus, who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped and held onto, he humbled himself into the form of humanity, took on flesh, that he may die the death that we so deserved. He was a willing sacrifice on our behalf. And this is the call for all who follow him. What we have been given in him is not ours to hoard. What makes us complete is not what our neighbors have. It's not what job title we have. It's not what the celebrity's life looks like on Instagram. What makes us complete is Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. He is enough. For he fills us to be a people who do not need to take, but he fills us to be a people who can give because we have received and what we have received fills us and overflows us so much that we have plenty to give away because when it comes to the economy of God, there is no scarcity there's enough for everyone. See, the extortioner oppresses and holds down. The follower of Jesus, he raises up and brings life. So look at your life and the decisions in front of you and where you have opportunity to, to give. Give freely. Give of yourself, your time, your talents, your abilities. Give freely. And bring life, sow the seeds of life wherever you go. The greedy, they're always demanding more. The follower of Jesus has been given all we need in him. So instead of worrying about your position and if someone's gunning for your job, 
What if instead we were secure in what Jesus has given us and we sought to raise up those around us, not keep them down, to speak life that has been given to us in Christ? See, this is the call that's upon each and every one of us as we pursue Jesus, as we follow after him. But God here is warning us, woe to the one who takes what's not theirs. Woe to the one who oppresses. Woe to the one who sows the seeds of death. But blessed is the one who receives Jesus. For in him we have been given the fullness of life. So may we as a people and as individuals be known as those who give and not just take. And may we be known as a people who do not oppress but live generous. You pray with me. Father, as we were reminded again of these paths before us, Lord, would we choose life, life that is found in you. And Lord, I pray that in the decisions that come in those there's still moments where no one else seems to be present. No one else sees the wrestle of what we're wading through or thinking through. No one else quite feels the ramifications of the decisions we're making like we do. Lord, would your spirit and power speak to us in those moments. Give us courage to follow after you, to choose life, even at great cost. Because you, Jesus, gave everything that in you we might live. And Lord, where we can use our voice, use our influence for the good of others to speak on behalf of the vulnerable, would, would we? And Lord, would we also be quick to recognize when we, we feel the seeds of death being watered in our life, when we feel the bubbling up of emotions or thoughts that we, we know are not of you, that are easy to feed, easy to joke about. But God, would you quiet them with your peace and remind us that all of us came into this world with nothing. And yet you have given us breath in our lungs. You have given us life. And so Lord, would we not cling to material good? Would we not cling to position? Would we cling to the truth of who you are? For if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed to taste and see the world he has created around us and to taste and see that he is good, the ultimate good. Jesus, we love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. He calls us to imitate this pattern, to be a people that don't just take, but we give generously. And not just our money, but of ourselves, our time, our talents. So may we be a people that choose him, choose to walk after him, 
that generously live among those around us to his glory and his alone. As we step forward from here today, may you go knowing his grace, experiencing his grace, and feeling his peace and the wholeness that comes from knowing him. God bless you. We'll see you next week. We're just kidding. We'll see you up at lunch <laughs> and on the bounce houses.